Well, welcome this morning. Um, appreciate you guys joining us today. Uh, bad news. If uh, I know Tony last week read off the names of people that are preaching the series, and he said Brett first. So if you, if you assume that Brett was preaching today, I'm sorry. Um, also, I figure there's not very many people here, and it's probably not the 4th of July. It's probably because you knew Brett was going to preach. So uh, I think I'm in good shape. Um, so this morning, um, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 2. So grab your Bible. Um, if you don't have one, download the Bible app because you're going to want to follow along because we're going to um, dig through some Scripture and see uh, what God's doing. And so I want to start off um, with this, with chapter 2, verse 11. And it said, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let's pray this morning as we open. God, we just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity just to be in your house to uh, give you glory and praise. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to celebrate uh, our freedom this weekend as a nation. But Lord, most importantly, we celebrate our freedom in you that you have uh, redeemed us and you have claimed us as your own, that we are no longer a slave to sin and no longer abound by its wrath. But Lord, we are free to worship you. And we thank you so much for your son. And we, as we spend our time this morning, we ask that you would take my words and that you would put them um, through your spirit and that you would just allow for supernatural hearing um, that would take this into our hearts and that we would just know who you are. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So this morning, I'm kicking off the summer series titled uh, Truth and Grace, and the next five Sundays, we'll be going through the book of John. So the good news is I get to bat lead off, so no one ever expects a home run from the leadoff hitter. Just try to put the ball in play and don't strike out. That's always the key. I feel bad for Joe because he's clean up, so we'll uh, see how that goes. But we're going to look at Jesus' life, and we're looking at how he interacted with those around him. And so as we think about our own life, a lot of times when we talk about the series, we're talking about truth and grace, that many times we want to take certain parts of that, and maybe we live our life with all truth, but we don't extend grace. Or maybe our life is all grace, but we never want to give people the truth. Well, see, Jesus was full of both. He was full of truth and grace. And so our, need, our life needs to reflect his. And so this morning we're going to look at this scripture and we're going to impact how Jesus was able to accomplish both. And as I prepare for this, um, I, it reminds me of a book that I read as a, a child and then I've been reading to my kids. How many of you have ever read There's a Monster at the End of This Book by Lovable, Lovable Furble Grover? Anyone ever heard that book? Okay. So Grover from Sesame Street, it's, it's a book that um, you read, and it's, the title is, There's a Monster at the End of This Book. And as you read it, every page, Grover first says, what does that say? There's a monster at the end of this book? And he, he tries to stop you every page from turning. Because as you turn the page, you're one page closer to the monster at the end of the book. And so as I read this to my kids, as we get page by page, I watch their eyes, the first time we read it, just get bigger and bigger because they know there's a monster at the end of this book. And they're worried and they're scared, and you get to the last page, and the monster at the end of the book is Grover. He's the monster. And you can laugh about it, like, oh, that's a cool book, because he's like building a brick wall. He's trying to nail the pages together. But it makes a difference when you know the end of the story. 
And that's what I was thinking about with this, that today, if you've, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this section of Scripture dozens of times. We're going to be walking through Jesus turning water into wine. And I know the end of the story. I know the end. And John, who's writing this, so John is a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the only ones that walked with Jesus that got to write a gospel. And he's writing this 30 to 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And he's reflecting back on his life with Jesus and walking through it. And he knows the end of the story. He knows that Jesus is going to be crucified. He knows that he raises from the dead. But when this story took place, he didn't know the end. This was just the very beginning. And so knowing the end is a huge advantage. So we have this account from John, and he was, he was urged by the early church to write it down because he was the only disciple left that wasn't martyred. They're like, John, you've got to write this down. You've got to tell us about this. And I just, in my mind, I think about John writing it down, and, and I think just like chuckling, going, ha, I never saw it. I could not see it until I knew the end. And we're going to look at that this morning. But there's also a downside to knowing the end. How many of you guys can rewatch a sporting event more than once? Now, I, I can't do it. People are like, oh, I rewatched this Ohio State game. I rewatched this Bengals game. And I'm like, why? You already know the end. All the plays in between don't matter because you know the end. And so as I stayed in this, and Tony assigned this scripture, I was not excited because I'm like, okay, Jesus turns water into wine. It's pretty simple. He is God and he can do cool things and we're off to the races. But because I knew the end, I missed the entire game of what he's doing. And so this morning we're going to look at that because I think there's so much more here than just turning water into wine. And so if you've grown up in church, you've probably missed it as well. Even after Tony assigned it, I read the scripture probably 20 times. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I still don't get it. So thankfully, there's resources that help you that when you don't understand something, um, you don't have to understand it all. And so this morning, um, we're going to set the stage. We've got to understand what is going on in this passage, the setting, before we really understand what Jesus is doing. So as I mentioned, the book of John is written um, by John, who was a disciple of Jesus. He was Jesus' closest friend. Um, it refers to him as the one that Jesus loved. And he walked with Jesus his entire life. And this is taking place at a Jewish wedding. So something you got to know about Jewish culture and weddings, it's very different from ours today, that a wedding was really a three-part event. There was the engagement where the two families would come together and say, yes, these two are going to be married. And then they would negotiate the deal because back then you had dowries and things like that. And so they would settle on the deal. And then typically the wedding would happen about a year plus later. And that period in between is called the betrothal period. And I'm not going to go down the road of the Jewish words because that's a disaster. Um, and so it was this time period where the groom was preparing to claim his bride. And it was also a time where the father of the groom was gathering assets to be able to pay the dowry. So it took this time to get there. And so once the dad had everything together and was ready, and then once he saw his son was ready that had prepared the new home for his wife and was ready to go, the father would then say, son, you are ready, go claim your bride. And that would typically take between one and up to seven years. And we talked about, if you've ever planned a wedding, could you imagine planning a wedding for seven years? 
Like, it's stressful enough. It'd be a long time. But then once he claimed his bride, there would be this marriage ceremony. And that's where we sit today, at the, at the wedding feast. And this is where this is taking place. And the thing about the marriage feast, it wasn't just a, hey, let's have a good time, celebrate. It was an event. An event that showed multiple things. It typically lasted up to seven days. So it was a party every evening to celebrate this new couple and their commitment to each other. But in that time that the groom was preparing, he was preparing for his wife to come into the family, but he was preparing to throw this feast. It was his responsibility. It was a really, really big deal in Jewish culture. That the, the extent of the feast, how extravagant and how well it's taken care of, symbolized how well you could take care of your wife. And you had to prove to the other family that I'm good enough and I can do this. And it took all this time. If it did not go well, if you did not throw the celebration that you were supposed to throw, the mother of the bride could sue the groom over it. That's a great way to start mother, mother-in-law relations. So he's got a lot of pressure on him. And this story is occurring just shortly after Jesus has started his ministry. So Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. And then he immediately went to the desert um, to be tempted for 40 days. And he's come back and he's called his very first disciples. So his disciples have been following him. We're not sure. Days, weeks, it is a very, very, very early on in Jesus's uh, ministry. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So a couple of things out of this first part. So we know that it's happening on the third day. So th- we're not sure exactly how this plays out. It can mean one of two things. This could be the third day of the seven-day wedding, or this could be Tuesday. And Tuesday is a likelihood as well, because in early Jewish cultures, they would have weddings a lot of times on Tuesday. And it coincided with uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 10, in God's creation, when he made the earth, the first two days, he made it. On the third day after creation, he said, it was good. So a lot of times in Jewish culture, they would have their wedding on Tuesday, because they wanted that blessing of God to be good. So we're not sure if it's the third day of the wedding, or if it's a Tuesday, but it's early in the wedding. And Mary says to him, they have no more wine. And this is a big deal. Whether it's seven day, seven day feast, they're only four days in and they're out. There's also a chance it could be a one day wedding because one thing we know about Jesus, when you look at his sacrifices with Mary and Joseph, they were poor. They were not this upper social class. They were a very low class. And most likely Jesus was invited to weddings of people in the same social class. So this may just been a one-day wedding, and even if it's a one-day wedding, we don't have enough wine to keep the party going. And the groom has just spent a whole year preparing for this wedding feast, and it's not going well. Him running out of wine or food would have been a disgrace to him, to his family, and would have said, I'm not good enough to be this husband. So but Mary turns to Jesus and asks him to intervene. He says in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So these jars would have been there at the, at the entrance to the wedding. And they were placed there for, for ceremonial cleansing. So these, the wedding feast, if it was seven days, would happen every evening. So you go off and work and come back. And they'd have this feast every evening. But you would have to wash your hands because no running water, no Perel, nothing you can clean up with. And you wanted to get the dirt off of you because there's no utensils, so they ate with their hands. So being clean was very important. So there was a physical cleaning part, but there was also the ceremonial clean because in your day of work, you may have touched things that were unclean. So this water was there to cleanse you physically and also to cleanse you spiritually to take part in this feast. So it says in end of eight, and they, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it come from, that the servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then cheaper wine after the guests have had much, too much to drink. But you'd save the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum and his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So we see this first miracle, Jesus' first act of ministry. And so who is this Jesus? And is this the Jesus that we are portraying to the people around us? So we think about this wedding. It's a celebration. So one thing to tell us about Jesus is he's fun. He's the person that you want to, sell, you want to bring to the celebration. They wanted him there along with his disciples. So when they're making the invitation list, they're like, hey, Jesus, that guy? He's a good time. We should bring him and his friends because they're fun to be around. When's the last time you heard of talking about a party? Hey, let's invite the pastor and the deacons. That'll be a good time. Yeah, said no one ever. Like, it's like, oh, that's, yeah, this is a great time. Wait, that's, like, that's how you kill the party, not bring the party. But these are the people that, G, that these people wanted to be around. They were on the list. You know who's not there? The religious leaders. Now, it doesn't say that for sure, but a little bit of investigation says they weren't there. And why? Because every time you see Jesus do something in the New Testament, who was there to complain about it? The religious leaders. Heal someone on the Sabbath? Shouldn't do that. Like, guy hasn't walked. Did this and that? They're always complaining about it. They couldn't see what he was doing. And when you see this, you don't hear of anyone complaining. So I'm going, hey, guess who wasn't there? The religious leaders. Why? Because they weren't any fun. Like, why would you want to invite that people are going to tell you everything you do wrong and point out all the time, saying, ah, you're not doing that right. Your wedding should be this way. Did you provide this? Did you do that? You don't want to invite those people to the wedding. But Jesus was invited. He's invited because he was a friend. So this is the bride and groom. They did not know him as the son of God. This is early. It'd be different if you're like, yeah, I'm going to invite the famous one, the one who is the son of God, because just in case his blessing on my wedding made really good. That's not who they knew Jesus as. They knew him as the neighbor, as the friend, the person they grew up with. But also showed that Jesus was accessible. He knew he was the son of God. But he didn't spend his time on the temples like the religious holy people saying, how holy and how great am I? I'm going to sit here, come and worship me. That's not how he lived his life. He lived his life with people. He wanted to be with his friends. He didn't live as if he was more important, but also shows as a friend, 
you can bring your troubles to him. We see that Jesus is full of grace. And we see this in a simple grace to the groom. You see, it's going horribly wrong for this, for this groom. The wedding is going. And back then, it talks about the master of the banquet. The whole focus of the wedding was to be on the bride and groom. Nothing was to detract from them. So you had this, usually a friend or maybe an uncle or something that would be the master of the banquet. And they would take care of all the needs. Think like the wedding planner. Anything goes wrong, you go to that person. It does not go to the bride and groom. And so Mary notices they're out of wine. It's a big deal. You don't want to tell the groom that. It's a bad deal. So the groom doesn't even know that there's a problem yet. You see, he prepared for that whole year, and it's falling apart. And I'm sure, as a groom, he was already nervous. I mean, getting married, trying to prepare for a wife, and whether it was a one-day wedding or a seven-day wedding, he probably knew he was going to come up short because he didn't have anything. He's done his best, but is it enough to prove that he's enough? It's been a huge stressor for him and his family. But Jesus is there, and he provides grace through, through help. He covers the groom's shortcomings, and he bestows honor to the groom. So when the master of the banquet comes up to the groom, he doesn't say, hey, disaster averted. He says, groom, I can't believe it. You save the best for last. That's not what you do. That shows this groom can provide so much more that the party's going to keep going. The best keeps coming. He's not coming up short. He's exceeding. He's not exceeding. It's Jesus who's exceeding. See, and Jesus doesn't just supply the wine for the day. When we know from, those, from the size of those jars, it would have been equal roughly to 1,200 bottles of wine. That's a pretty good party. It's, whether that is a day, a week, or a month, that's a lot. But he saves the best for last. But Jesus does this quietly. He has the opportunity to say, hear ye, hear ye, look at me. I'm the son of God, and I'm going to do amazing things. But he doesn't. He withdraws, and he takes care of the groom's shortcomings when no one's watching. Because he knows the wedding is about the groom and the bride, not about Jesus that day. So his grace isn't self-serving. It's to bring honor to the people it should bring honor to. See, today in culture, we, we've got a wrong view of Jesus. A lot of times we don't get the true view of his grace and his truth. And the reason that Jesus gets a bad reputation is because we don't live like Jesus. See, the world has an opposite view. They don't see Jesus as fun. They don't see him as a friend. They don't see him as accessible. A lot of times we'll see him as arrogant or greedy or judgmental, but that's not what we see in Scripture. The problem is they see us, not Jesus. They don't see him as that true friend who's coming joyously to celebrate the big occasion and as a true friend is working in the background. Just like we all have true friends, when we see disaster coming, you just fix it because you're a friend. And that's the way Jesus is working. He wasn't there to point out their mistakes he wasn't there to punish him to say, huh, see, told you you weren't good enough. See, told you you shouldn't have done this. I can't believe you had a whole year. You didn't get it right. 
That's not Jesus. But we get a clear picture of who Jesus was through what he's doing. So grace is often defined as giving us what we don't deserve. And I want you, I want you to hear this. God does not waste grace. So when we think about grace, sometimes we think, oh, he's going to give me something I don't deserve. And that is true. But every act of grace that God gives you is actually to draw you closer to him. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as, grace as, unmerited divine assistance given to humans for the regeneration or sanctification. God's just not handing out lollipops saying, here's one for you, here's one for you, here's one for you. He puts grace or a blessing in your life to point you and to bring you closer to him. And we see that in here. See, Jesus uses his actions of grace to point to truth. And this is what I completely missed every time I read this growing up. It says in 11, when, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this whole passage has to do about a wedding, has to do about grace to help people, but it's really about what Jesus is going to do. So one thing we always need to remember is that every miracle that Jesus does points to his mission. So a miracle is really the signs. The things that Jesus is doing, they're not just to show you that he's powerful. There's a whole mission underneath. So he's not there to perform magic tricks um, or anything like that. So this is a decision point for the disciples, a decision point for us, that they've seen Jesus turn water into wine. So they got to decide... Is he more than just a man, or is he God? It says they believed. So as I mentioned before, John is telling this story, and, and I really think, as I look back at it, John's writing this 30, 40 years later, and I think he's sitting back and chuckling. When we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, which means God gave John the words to write, and John is starting to write his story of his life with Jesus, and his whole purpose is to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole purpose of the book of John. And he starts with this first one. He's like, oh, man, I missed it. I don't know. I was there, and I don't know how I didn't see it. And I think he's just laughing the whole time as he writes this. Because this story of water and wine is just the gospel foreshadowed. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look at this bigger truth that Jesus is painting. In verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. So I think Jesus is telling us two things. He's saying, my hour's not come, which means this isn't my wedding. This isn't my show. This time and place is not about me. But I think he's also telling Mary, he's like, hey, this isn't my wedding. But I have a bigger wedding that's coming. And it's going to be amazing. And if you want to see a miracle, I'm going to show you the miracle I'm doing through salvation. So he takes this small problem for the bride and groom, and he takes that grace and pulls it towards truth. It says in Revelation 19, it says, Then I heard, a sound, heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters. It sounded like peals of thunder and shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those whom, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. See, Jesus is starting his ministry at a wedding. 
But he has promised he's going to finish his ministry at a wedding. This wedding, in Canaan, this, wedding in, this wedding in Canaan is reflecting the future wedding he's going to have. Verse 1, it says this wedding occurred on the third day. What do we know about the third day? That Jesus rose again. It says there are six jars out there that we wash ourselves in to make us clean. And guess what? They're not good enough to make us clean. But he's the seventh jar. Seven being perfect number, they guess I'm holy enough. He turns wa dirty water into clean, but he just doesn't take water and make it clean. He turns it into wine, which we know through communion represents his blood. He says, you wash in water today, but I'm going to wash you on blood later, which is going to make you perfectly clean forever. No longer are you going to have to wash yourself here. I am the true vessel that can provide true repentance and sanctification. And when he does it, he does it well. 1,200 bottles of wine says his party and his wedding will never end. So as I close, I think back, we're seeing two things. We're seeing grace and we're seeing it reflect truth. So I need to think in two things. Am I living my life in a way that my grace reflects the truth of God? Am I providing that grace to others? So as we think of that, we look back at the miracle. What did Jesus physically do in that miracle? The answer is nothing. So he promises to make us clean, but he used the servants to do the miracle. Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. So Jesus is going to use the people that serve him to perform the miracle. He never touched the water and make it into wine, but he's going to use us. He's going to use the church to provide that miracle. So are we willing to do what Jesus says to provide the miracles and the blessings that he wants to bestow on us and the people around us? See, there's a wedding day coming, and it's going to be more grand than any wedding you've ever been to. Revelation 21.9 says, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It shone like the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper as clear as crystal. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding and supper of the Lamb. So if you didn't grow up in church, you're thinking, what is he talking about? We were promised that Jesus is the Lamb, that his blood's been poured out for us, and that is how we are going to be sanctified and brought into holy in relationship with him. But it says there's a wedding, and he's going to marry somebody. He's going to marry us. He's going to marry the church. Just like the groom we talked about earlier, he spent a year preparing. Jesus is preparing for this wedding to come, to where he's going to come and claim his people. As Tony read earlier in Revelation, all things are going to be new. No pain, no suffering, no crying in that wedding. And if you're hearing these words today, you're invited to the wedding. It's a personal invitation. That is your name on it. But Jesus is calling you to be part of the wedding. Not just to watch it, but to be in the wedding. To be part of the bride and by that body. And Jesus is going to come and claim his church. And it is going to be a glorious, glorious party. As I say, I missed it all. I read that so many times and never saw it. But when we take things through the lens of truth and grace, we can see what God's doing. 
may not understand today. John did not understand it until a long time later. And he said, wow, I was there. I was a disciple. I didn't get it. But what Jesus did that day was telling us of the promise that he has to come. So as we close, we'll give you this invitation. That Jesus put an invitation to his wedding with your name on it. Not just to watch, but to be part of the bride. He promises a wedding. And for those that come, they're blessed. It also says for those that do not come, it's not good. And he wants you. He's calling you. He's calling each and every one of us to be part of that bride. So if you've never accepted Christ today and decided to be part of his wedding feast, he's good. We want to paint a picture of you of who Christ is and what he's really done. He's a friend. He's fun. Sometimes the waiting for the wedding, not so much fun. But he's worth the wait. Let us pray.